Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. U.S. upswing, COVID cases on the rise as phased reopenings continue. Wirecard woes. The payment firm says a missing $2 billion sum may never have existed at all. And seriously ticked off. Did TikTok's users trick President Trump's team over rally attendance? Wow. It's Monday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to all our first movers around the globe. Good to be with you on a milestone day here in New York City as the reopenings continue. For the first time in three months, we can now get a haircut. Yes, it's the simple pleasures. Restaurants can serve outside. Some workers are heading back to the city too. I'll emphasize the sum. Sadly, the news in many other parts of the United States and around the world too remains sobering. 23 U.S. states are reporting a rise in infections and the World Health Organization recorded its largest ever jump in global COVID-19 cases on Sunday. So the battle well and truly continues. Right now, I'll give you a look at what we're seeing for U.S. stock market futures, solidly higher after gains last week too. Friday session though, was dented by news that Apple plans to shut 11 stores in states with rising COVID cases. The stop-start recovery. Asian stocks, meanwhile, treading water, as you can see today, though the Nikkei and the Hang Seng have gained more than 3% over the past five sessions. Let's take a look at European stocks, too. They're soft, but all the majors as well, rising some 3% last week. For investors, there's a tug of war going on between economic data and stimulus on the one hand and health data, I think, on the other. Here in the United States, you can compare statistics like the better-than-expected job gains, the retail sales numbers that we've got over the past couple of weeks versus the worsening state of the nation's health. This is the best illustration I can give you to compare the virus cases in the United States and the EU. It's okay preparing for a second wave in the fall here in the US as long as you acknowledge that wave one is simply not over. That comparison chart for me speaks volumes. BlackRock now saying Europe's economic growth could outperform the United States in the second half of the year because of its robust economic response to the crisis, never mind the policy response. Let's get to the drivers. Rover Flores has more on the surge of new coronavirus cases here in the U.S. The Trump administration says it's preparing for a possible second wave of the coronavirus after a week of downplaying the recent surge sweeping across nearly half the nation. We are filling the stockpile in anticipation of a possible problem in the fall. We're doing everything we can beneath the surface, working as hard as we possibly can. Last week, Vice President Mike Pence said in a Wall Street Journal op-ed that panic over a second wave was overblown. And on Saturday, President Trump said this to supporters about coronavirus testing. So I said to my people, slow the testing down, please. They test and they test. We got tests that people don't know what's going on. His staff later said he was joking. But the increase in cases within at least 23 states is very serious for many state leaders. Do you think the people, the 120,000 families out there who are missing their loved ones thought it was funny? 
With focus now on Florida as a possible epicenter of coronavirus, Governor Ron DeSantis is now admitting the recent spike in cases isn't only due to testing, while highlighting a shift in just who's receiving positive results. Increasing or being flat, the number of people testing positive is, is accelerating faster than that. And so, you know, that's evidence that there's transmission within those uh, communities, um, particularly the 20s and 30s. While some officials say more young people are being diagnosed due to widespread testing, others suggest it's because they fail to follow social distancing measures. Either way, health experts sending this warning. These people tend to be less symptomatic, they get less ill, and they tend therefore to be spreaders. They can spread it among their fellow workers, their family members. There's also a surge in Arizona, where Trump is scheduled to hold a campaign rally tomorrow. Cases nearly doubling there over the past two weeks and passing the 50,000 mark. Still, Republican Governor Doug Ducey says he has no plans to slow the reopening of the state. In Phoenix, City Council voting to make masks mandatory in public for its residents, with the county also issuing an order. Phoenix's Democratic mayor says she hopes the president will comply during his visit, despite repeatedly avoiding masks at other events during the pandemic. One of the reasons we have this growth in Arizona is complacency. Uh, we've had elected officials say that the worst was over a month ago. That was not the case, and we are seeing records of the type we don't want to break. Rosa Flores reporting there. Now to China, where Beijing says it has more than doubled its coronavirus testing capabilities to around one million people a day. This comes as PepsiCo shuts down one of its plants in the Chinese capital after several workers tested positive for COVID-19. China also suspending poultry imports from a Tyson Foods plant in the United States following an outbreak of the virus at the facility. David Culver is live in Beijing. Forrest, David, always great to have you on. Two very important stories. One, the ramp up in testing there, but also supply chain concerns. Talk us through both, please. Hi, Julia. Good to be with you as well. And you point out this is having an impact on businesses in particular. Now, as far as the capacity increase is concerned, that is significant. You're talking about a million people a day capacity that they could do for screening for the coronavirus here within Beijing. That's just within the capital city. Now, they currently have done about 2.3 million tests. That's the number of people that they have gone through uh, with the certain screening linked to that original outbreak about 10 days or so ago with the Shinfadi seafood and uh, regular produce market. And that obviously has been shut down. The, the perimeter and several of the surrounding neighborhoods have also been shuttered and, and kind of put into a Wuhan-like lockdown. Outside of that area, life continues mostly normal. However, the screening is intense, and it's something that they anticipate will continue over the next several days. The most recent increase in cases is only about nine, and that seems relatively low when you compare it internationally in particular. However, it's most concerning because it is the capital city we're talking about here. Now, going forward, they do anticipate these cases to continue each and every day to be added to the total. And right now they're looking at 236 with regards to this most recent outbreak. But as far as the businesses impacted, you mentioned that PepsiCo being one of them. They had a factory that makes potato chips here in Beijing. It shut down and it had eight employees who tested positive. And then with regards to the imports, they have the Tyson meats that normally are coming in here to China from the U.S. in particular. They had to stop all that import for now because of concerns linked to 
the outbreak within the U.S. and those particular manufacturing plants there. All in all, though, they are looking at this as something under control here in Beijing, and that's something that they're stressing. Uh, and they also stress that this is a European strain of the virus. And it, it's going to be interesting to see in the coming days if that control and calm is maintained. Because one thing we look at are the anecdotal experiences, and that particularly relates to what the hospitals are dealing with. And you, and you look at Wuhan, and after we made those trips there initially, dating back even to January, you wanted to see the, the influx that the hospitals were having to deal with, and that gave us a good idea as to how accurate the numbers were. As of now, even making the rounds and looking at a few hospitals here, things seem relatively calm and appear to be under control, Julia. Yeah, good to know. Also, very important point on the supply chains because we've allowed the supplies of goods to move around the world, even as we've stopped people. So when you start to see suspensions right. on food imports, so you have to raise some eyebrows here. But, um, yeah, we don't want to be uh, connecting too many dots here. But for now, it's important to note. David, great to have you with us. Yeah. David Culver there, as always. Fantastic right. job. All right, missing cash, plunging shares. Wirecard stock is down over 85% in the past three sessions. This after the payments firm acknowledged that the $2 billion sum that auditors can't find probably never existed. Anna Stewart is following this remarkable story for us. Just explain what brought us to this point, Anna, so that our viewers can understand what's going on. And where were the auditors when $2 billion can't be found? It's an incredibly complex and thrilling tale, really. $2.1 billion is a large amount by any measure, but this also represents a quarter of the company's assets. The story really begins last year when the Financial Times first reported on accounting irregularities. It did this um, through the help of some whistleblowers. And as a result of that, KPMG were employed to do a special audit of Wirecard. Now, they couldn't point to any direct manipulation, but they said certain information was missing, particularly regarding bank accounts and this vast sum of money related to Wirecard's so-called third-party acquiring business. This is where, where Wirecard uh, operates in a country that doesn't have a direct license. It outsourced to another payment processing company. Uh, and the money was thought to be held in Asia, largely in the Philippines and some bank accounts there. Now, since the KPMG report, EY were meant to do their regular audit. They've done it for around 10 years now. And following KPMG, they also discovered that they really couldn't find this money or the accounting for it. Over the weekend, the governor of the Central Bank of Philippines, this is where we head to next, did confirm that Wirecard says they have two uh, bank accounts at two different banks within the Philippines, but he says that no money regarding related to this ever entered the country's system. So what was emerging last week is the story of a missing $2 billion uh, has now turned into, did it ever even exist? And if it didn't exist, well, that brings into huge question the scale of fraudulent activity within Wirecard, if that is the case. But also, how did it bypass auditors and regulators for so long? Couldn't agree more, Anna. What on earth was going on? The CEO who's been there almost two decades has now stepped down. He's the largest shareholder. What next? 
I'd love to know what's next, what the next <laughs> chapter is. Now, in any ordinary situation with an accountancy scandal, you'd expect more heads to roll, an internal probe, uh, an, an audit that could actually be completed so they know what's happened, and potentially criminal prosecution if uh, it shows major fraudulent activity, which it suggests at this stage that it would. The big question is, can Wirecard survive through that process? Will it have any employees? This is a huge amount of its business. It needs to roll over some loans. Who, which creditor is going to give it money at this stage? So there's a question of the viability of the actual business itself. And then actually, if you just broaden out, you've got to look at the fact that this story wouldn't really emerge without the Financial Times. What about the auditor that has been auditing them for a decade, EY? What about the German regulator, which when this story first emerged last year, Barfin, the German financial regulator, stopped short selling on this stock, which many people saw as a way of trying to protect the stock rather than focusing on investigating it. So, yes, what happens next within the actual story itself and then what kind of ramifications we see throughout the system? Yes. Odes of Enron over in Germany there. And of course, to your point as well, a lot of investors here getting burned. Anna Stewart, great job. That's a complex story and uh, you explained well. Thank you, Anna Stewart. There. <laughs> All right, these are the stories uh, making headlines now around the world. John Bolton, who worked for US President Trump for 17 months as his national security advisor, says the president is not fit for office. Bolton spoke to ABC News ahead of the release of a damning book about his time in the White House, which on Saturday a judge refused to block from publication. I hope uh, it will remember him as a one-term president who didn't plunge the country irretrievably into a downward spiral we can't recall from. We can get over one term. Two terms I'm more troubled about. NASCAR says an investigation is underway to find out who placed a noose in the garage belonging to Bubba Wallace, the only black driver in the main NASCAR championship. The organization says the culprit will be excluded from the sport. Wallace's public criticism of Confederate flags being displayed at races was followed recently by NASCAR banning the emblem. The anger and frustration felt by black people in the United Kingdom is laid bare in a detailed new poll by CNN. The findings from policing to politics say they feel their country has failed them. It reveals a stark divide between black and white people's perceptions of racism. Black Britons are twice as likely as white people to say the UK has not done enough to address historical racial injustice. Today is Windrush Day in the UK. It's named after the Empire Windrush Ocean Liner. In 1948, the ship brought hundreds of Caribbean families to Britain. They answered the British government's call to help rebuild a country ravaged by World War II. Senior international correspondent Nima El-Bajir is live at Windrush Square in London, the crucible of black consciousness in the UK. A very appropriate place to be, Nima. Great to have you on the show with us this morning. But stark findings, I think, in the contrast in perceptions about racism in the UK. It really sheds light on the depth of the divide along mm. racial lines with regards to the experiences, but also the perceptions of this experiences. For almost most of our answers, black Britain's uh, responses versus white Britain's responses were twice as likely. So when it came to the experience of disrespect uh, by the police, black Britain said it was twice as likely to have happened to them. When it came to their perception that the party in power, the Conservatives, were institutionally racist, 
twice as likely to believe that and true to be true. And, and, and most heartbreaking, the belief that their race had an impact on their ability to move forward within whatever profession they chose, that, that their ethnicity had uh, an impact on their success in life. Black Britons were three times as likely as white Britons to agree. And when you break down those numbers, Julia, the picture that emerges is not just that black Britons don't appear to have been heard when it comes to the stories that they have been told, telling for decades regarding their experience of life in the UK, but it's clear that they have not been believed by their white countrymen. There is no other explanation for such a stark, stark gap with regards to the responses that we, we got when you break it down by race, Julia. Nima, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. We're going to be talking about this more later on in the show. Thank you for now. All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move, but still to come, digital driving a thaw in the hiring freeze. Singapore's biggest bank looking to recruit coders. We speak to the CEO next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. A quick look at stock markets as we head towards the U.S. Open today. We're on track for a higher open. It's the first trading day of summer, of course. So investors not ignoring rising COVID-19 cases. And that may mean more unsettled action ahead. Airline stocks in particular in focus remaining volatile. American Airlines leading the declines, in fact, pre-market. They've announced they will raise $3.5 billion in new financing to steady up the balance sheet. That includes selling new shares. Hmm. As you can see, the entire sector under a bit of pressure there. To Singapore now, under the second phase of reopening its economy. Malls, gyms and restaurants reopened their doors last Friday. The country, meanwhile, has reported more than 42,000 coronavirus cases. In fact, that's one of the highest infections in Asia. Last month, Singapore also warned growth could shrink as much as 7% this year. Joining us now, Piyush Gupta. He's the CEO of Southeast Asia's largest bank, DBS. Piyush, always fantastic to have you on the show. Clearly many small and medium-sized... Good morning. (laughs) Clearly many uh, small and medium-sized enterprises in particular will be relieved to, to get underway, to start the reopening of the economy. What are your expectations in terms of what recovery looks like for Singapore, but more broadly too? Well, um, I think in Singapore, the lockdowns were kind of proportionate and therefore a large parts of the economy actually continued working apace. Uh, in banking, for example, we did not really see a slowdown. Uh, but the sectors which did get impacted were food and beverages, retail, the consumer good industries, uh, uh, if you will. And for them, of course, the reopening is a godsend because it starts putting up feet on street and people are coming in for business. Now, the reality, though, is that when you think about the macroeconomic construct, both for Singapore and the region, this is unlikely to be enough. So it is going to be a long, hard winter. Uh, for Singapore, we are more impacted by global economies. Our trade to GDP is 350 to 400%. So what matters to us is growth in the U.S., growth in Europe, and growth in China. And uh, our own take is that that's going to be hard to come by. Uh, In the rest of the region, it's actually been quite interesting that the bounce back uh, in the short term has been sharp. Uh, But I do think that there will be headwinds uh, as we go forward. I think a lot of countries have 
limited fiscal space, so I think that will be a bit of a drag. Mm. Uh, I think the second phase of the pandemic could happen, and if that does happen, that would be a serious concern. Uh, but I think more closer to home, to my own industry, I think for most countries, um, the central bank action and the fiscal policy action has bought people time. You just kick the can down the road. As and when the government programs uh, run out, I think you'll begin to see the second shoe start to drop. You will see a wave of bankruptcies. And as a consequence, you will start seeing some of the real sector challenges begin to spill over into the financial system as well. So I do think that the next couple of years are not going to be easy for anybody, um, leave alone Singapore. What sectors are you most worried about? I was just mentioning there the airlines Clearly, that's a challenge industry, restaurants, anywhere where capacity is limited by the requirement for social distancing or, or human interaction. What are your thoughts there? I think the biggest challenge uh, will be anything that requires cross-border activity more than domestic mm. activity. Uh, it is going to be some time before people are willing to travel internationally. And frankly, for corporate travel, I think there's going to see a more permanent decline. And therefore, airlines, tourism, the hotel industry uh, will be impacted. Uh, but you have to understand that in Asia, in addition to the challenges of uh, the COVID, uh, there are also the geopolitical challenges that we have to contend with. And therefore, the tensions between China and the U.S., the possibility of shifts in supply chain, uh, mean that even manufacturing uh, sectors and the manufacturing industry might be impacted. Uh, and for Singapore, which is a big entrepot, uh, the notion of shifting trade patterns means you could start seeing impact in other parallel industries as well, logistics, for example, and shipping. Uh, so I do think there's a lot of uh, uncertainty uh, as we go forward. Uh, I think what you need to do, which is what we're trying to do in Singapore, uh, is prepare for the medium term, uh, but also begin to prepare for the longer term, which is think about new avenues for growth and deconstructing the economy for a different kind of future. It's such an important point. Speaking of avenues of growth, you had a head start as a bank in terms of the dramatic shift to the need for digitization to be able to access banks, facilities, whatever it was from a distance. You're, and I mentioned this in the introduction as well, looking to hire, actually to add capacity to support um, the digital growth that you've seen and will see going forward. Talk to me about your hiring plans. Uh, Julia, as you rightly mentioned, we got on to the digitization wave some five or six years ago. Mm. And that's been extraordinarily helpful for us, uh, both in terms of giving our customers very easy access, as well as, uh, you know, uh, letting our employees work from home. Uh, for us, we didn't skip a beat. And frankly, our volumes are up year on year and productivity has been keeping pace. So that's actually been quite helpful. Uh, for us, uh, we tend to believe in investing through cycles. And down cycles of this nature are, frankly, a good time to add capacity to make investments which will prepare us for the longer term. So that is something that we are doing. We are hiring people for um, general coding. We are hiring people in artificial intelligence and machine learning, in data analytics, design people, and so on and so forth. Uh, but we are also hiring for a different reason. Uh, we believe that one of the biggest challenges right now is going to be jobs and particularly jobs for the young kids coming out of colleges. Mm -hmm. I really worry this is going to be a lost generation, maybe one to three years 
of kids who are going to be scrambling for employment. Uh, and as a meaningful and material player in Singapore, we think it is incumbent on us to try and create some uh, possibilities, some hope for these young kids. So we're actually stretching ourselves to try and create jobs for many of these people, traineeships, entry-level jobs, uh, apprenticeship jobs, uh, so that people really have something that they can do, they can occupy themselves, learn along the way. And frankly, I think it will benefit us too in the long term. It's such an important point, and it needs to be a focus all around the world, a potential lost generation. I think you said it perfectly there. I want to talk about the work that you're doing as a bank and that your employees are doing to give back at this time too. I know you've been buying food from local businesses to, to give to people, also virtual volunteering. Talk to me about this as well. Well, you know, one of the things that uh, we think will happen post-COVID is a very sharp focus on this idea of purpose. You know, why do companies exist? Uh, what is the social agenda they serve? And I think uh, it's very likely you'll wind up into uh, uh, very distinct categories. You're either a hero or you're a villain. Uh, people will be looking for, pe for companies who do real things for real people. So in that regard, we've been wanting to try and make sure that we are here for the community and we're here for society. Uh, and, you know, like other people, we set together a fund called uh, Stronger Together Fund. Uh, we're trying to do 700,000 meals for people across the region. But one of the more innovative ideas our people came up with was this idea of virtual volunteering. There are hundreds and thousands of elderly people stuck in their homes, uh, isolated, and they need companionship. And so what we did is we figured we could do a voluntary companion program where our employees would sort of dial in and talk to the elderly people in their homes and give them some uh, solace and something to uh, take their minds off all of the tensions and the crisis that they're seeing day to day. Uh, so that is actually kicked off. That's very good. In fact, we have a whole series of different programs, but I'm particularly pleased with this one. This is a phenomenal program. Thank you so much for, uh, for talking about it and to your employees as well for, uh, for engaging in this. I do want to ask you very quickly, Piyush, while I have you. We had the foreign minister of Singapore on last week and he was talking to me about the policy of the government promoting the hiring of Singaporean nationals versus perhaps migrants or those from abroad. How is that going to filter into your hiring decisions, just in light of everything that you said about the challenge of readjusting things like supply chains, the focus on national policies, but also the need to engage with talent, particularly the younger generations? Julia, I think, uh, first of all, this is part of our philosophy. 90% um, of our talent in every country is local talent. Uh, we believe that that's the right way to run business. Uh, on top of that, I do think that, again, post-COVID, you will find this... Uh, huge pressure in every country, in every market to protect local jobs because a lot of people are going to be unemployed. You think about the U.S. I mean, the 20, 30 million people unemployed and there's going to be a lot of social pressure on trying to find jobs for local citizens. Uh, I don't think it is uh, unrealistic or uh, frankly even incorrect. So I do think you'll see some of that. Uh, having said that, the Singapore government has always been very pragmatic. So in our own case, we do not anticipate any challenges in hiring specific talent for specific areas and jobs uh, if we do need those people. Uh, but I do think it behoves us to be socially conscious and make sure, as I said before, that we are relevant to the society in which we operate. And that's just not true for Singaporeans in Singapore. 
is do as much for the people we hire in Indonesia and the people we hire in India as well. Yeah, it's a global conversation that's being had. Social conscience and pragmatism, the combination. Always fantastic to uh, have a conversation with you uh, on First Move. Piyush, great to have you with us. Stay safe, sir. Thanks so much. Thank you, the CEO of DBS Bank there. All right, the market open is next. Welcome back to First Move, where U.S. stocks are up and running as we kick off the new trading week. And it's the last full week of trading for the second quarter, too. And we do see early gains. Tech stocks looking set to outperform. Oh, maybe I spoke too soon. We're already slumping in the first few minutes here. Apple and Microsoft are going to be in focus, of course, too, after Friday's pullback. Yes, there you go. You see they're bouncing a little bit. Tech was the strongest sector last week, rising more than three and a half percent, though it was the small cap stock. So think more domestically focused businesses that, that easily outperformed the Dow and the S&P 500. As you can see, it's another sign perhaps that the market breadth is improving with more stocks on the whole contributing to the overall gains. It's not just a handful of the big tech names that are pulling everybody higher. This is important if you want to see a sustained rally. That said, more U.S. companies are cautious. A new survey from Moody's Analytics says only one-fifth of firms are investing for the future, a higher rate of retrenchment, in fact, than during the financial crisis. So more companies this time are hoarding cash and the cutting costs. That points to uncertainty, and we know we've got that going forward. In the meantime, San Francisco startup Kinza says it can detect a COVID-19 outbreak more than two weeks before it happens. Its product is a smart thermometer used in households across the United States. Data from the devices allows the company to map transmission hotspots in real time. Today, the company is warning of spikes in Oklahoma, Missouri, Louisiana and Maine. Joining us on the show, Inder Singh, CEO and founder of Kinza. Inder, great to have you on the show once again. We talked to you at the height of the crisis and you were warning about hotspots at this point. Talk me through what you're seeing in the places that you're concerned about right today. Yeah, we're deeply concerned about those four states that you mentioned, um, particularly the, the southern states. We're seeing higher than what you would expect in terms of transmission rates. The speed at which illness is spreading is faster in those locations, and that's concerning. It's above and beyond what you'd expect for cold and flu season, and it's probably indicative of COVID-19 spreading. So it's not just about the number of cases that you're seeing. To your point, it's about the speed or the increase of them that you're seeing in these areas. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So we look at two things in particular. We look at the, the level of fever, um, uh, how many people have fever, and is it above and beyond what you'd expect for cold and flu season? And the second thing we look at is the rate of transmission. How fast is it spreading? And both of those things are starting to indicate that those could become COVID hotspots in the coming weeks, two, three weeks out. Now, just explain how your thermometer works, how the data is collected, because there will be people watching that didn't watch the interview with you last time and are thinking, hang on a second, if I take my temperature, is my data at risk? How is this working? So talk me through the product again. Yeah, so we make these. Uh, these are smart thermometers. They do far more than take a temperature. They help you understand some fundamental questions. Uh, what do I do? How sick am I? And what's going around? That inevitable question you ask when you get very sick. Um, they connect to an app, and the app helps you uh, helps provide guidance in the moment of need. 
that data is all aggregated and privacy is fully protected because what we're looking at is population level data. The percentage of people ill, the percentage, the rate of transmission, we're looking at that level of data, not at the individual data. Um, and this is essentially an early warning system. We've been building this for the last uh, eight years. In any epidemic response, there's a four-part response. Uh, the first is early warning. And if you don't have an early warning signal, there's no way to get in front of the epidemic. So this is really critical. This new, these new kinds of technologies, this new way of thinking to get ahead of an epidemic is really important so we can be proactive and not reactive. Um, and that's what we've been building for years. I remember thinking the last time we spoke and thinking about it afterwards that actually when I went online to have a look at your product, I will be, uh, I will be honest, that there are other options out there for smart thermometers. And if you guys could all speak and aggregate the data, then the map of potential cases, the spread of those thermometers would be that much larger. Are you talking to other producers of smart thermometers to potentially do this? Because it would help the authorities tackle this. We'd be delighted to partner with other with other companies. This concept and concepts like it need to be in, they need to be had by the public health system. Um, again, you know, my public health colleagues for years have thought about drugs, diagnostics, and vaccines as they should. But we need to also start leveraging 21st century technology to identify where and when illness is spreading. Um, you know, I go back to the same question that I posed eight years ago when I started Kinsa. How do you stop an outbreak? before it becomes an epidemic if you don't know where and when it's starting? And the answer is you don't. So we would be delighted to partner with other smart thermometer manufacturers. We'd be delighted to partner with the government to really make sure that we can get ahead of these epidemics. You know, if you want to stop uh, a, a, an outbreak early, you want to stop it when it's a flame, not when it's an inferno. And that's what's going to bring us back to an economy that's open. You know, at some point as well, you should be able to use this data to, to compare states, places around the world where mask use is or has a high prevalence versus states and areas that don't and compare spread versus people who are checking the thermometers and have a temperature. Are we at that stage yet or is it too early? We're right in that stage right now. Um, yeah. we need, there's a natural experiment going on to see whether the speed of spread is higher or lower in places that have masks. Now, I think most people's intuition, mine certainly, is that those locations where a large percentage of the population is wearing a mask, um, those places should have lower spread. And we have that natural experiment going on right now because we are seeing differences in locations in terms of the percentage of people using masks. So I'm very happy to bring that data back to you once we have it ready. Yes, please do. You let us know as soon as you've got it. Very quickly, production, because that was one of the challenges, ramping up for production for the amount of demand that you've seen. Where are you on that? Uh, we have the capability of making uh, millions of units per month and can scale that up further. Um, and so we are ahead of the demand cycle at this point. Um, so if anyone wants to order thermometers, please, please contact us. Yes, you use that opportunity there to pitch. <laughs> Great to have you with us. Come back when you have that data, because I do think it's so important to uh, refute or otherwise those that don't want to wear masks at this moment. Uh, Inder Singh, CEO and founder of Kinza. Thank you. All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move. But coming up, as CNN reveals stark differences in attitudes to racism, depending on your background, will show the huge disparities when it comes to opportunities in life, too. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move. As you already heard on the show this morning, a new CNN survey has laid bare the extent of potential racism in the UK, the huge disparity, at least, in the perception of racism, depending on the colour of your skin. Let me run through three key stats on business and entrepreneurship specifically. The poll found 69% of black people believe there's less opportunity to succeed professionally compared to just 29% of white people. Meanwhile, 42% of white people say non-whites have the same opportunities to succeed, while 12% of black people think that. While 64% of black people say employers are doing too little to promote black, Asian and minority people. Some stark contrast there in perceptions. Eric Collins is CEO and general partner at Impact X Capital. It's a venture capital firm aimed at minority-led businesses across Europe. Eric, fantastic to have you with us. You were just listening to those stats there. A stark contrast between the perceptions of white people and their and their perception of the opportunities out there versus what black people see. Does that surprise you? Thank you for having me. And no, it does not surprise me. When you look at some of the activities that have precipitated conversations like this, and which I welcome from CNN International, will note that some of those dynamics are very much seen not only in the States, but also in Europe. In the UK, for instance, you've seen a series of um, violent clashes with police, police deaths, uh, police citizen deaths at the hands of police, shootings in homes, some of the same sort of dynamics which have prompted people marching in the streets with Black Lives Matter, not only in the United States, but in the UK. And the people that I see that are marching are not marching because they feel as though there's not a problem or the problem exists over across the ocean, but the problem exists very precipitously and very tangibly at home. I mean, it's fueling all sorts of questions finally, I think, to be asked. But the statistics have long spoken for themselves. I I mentioned on our show last week that when you look at uh, in venture capital money that goes particularly to black-led businesses, it's less than 1% of all the money out there in the United States. Is the situation any better in Europe? Because this is what you do. You look for these opportunities. Uh, correct. ImpactX is very much looking for and has been for the last two years since our inception for underrepresented entrepreneurs, particularly black-led companies and female-led companies. What we found with the 700 companies that we've been able to source is there's a great deal of talent and that talent actually exists across the board. But when you get to the financial capability to then back that talent and to bring forward some of the ideas that will, we think have solutions for COVID, we think will actually create the next Amazon, there's not a proportionate amount of funding which is going into those organizations. So Impact X made it our business to focus on the places that are underrepresented in the venture capital portfolios. Uh, in Europe. And we found that in digital technology, there's still disparities in health, education, lifestyle investing, as well as media and entertainment investing. Why? Why isn't the money going to women-led businesses, to black or minority-led businesses? Is it about contacts? Is it about the networks? Is it about lower returns? Because you're seeing actually what the capacity of these businesses that you're investing is. How do they perform relative to white business led well we're proving out that we're proving out the thesis that in fact they perform just as well if not slightly better it will take wow. a little bit of time for that to happen as we get returns on capital 
But the returns on capital we'll be looking at are both returns that are financial returns, which is our fiduciary responsibility to our limited partners and investors, but also we're looking for positive social impact measured in terms of job creation, particularly at the C-suite, the founder ranks, boards of directors, and then technology roles within technology and other organizations. So what we've noticed, what I think, quite frankly, Julia, is that we're it's a very complex web, just like systemic racism, which you all have been talking about so well and sort of reporting on. One of the things that, we're, that I note is that there is this very entrenched approach. The entrenched approach is that you have a group of individuals called venture capitalists who promote themselves as being extremely successful, and that success is measured by the return that they have actually had in an investment. And in fact, the return they've had in investment has meant that there are very few investments made in women and minorities. If you look across the United States, for instance, look at Silicon Valley, look at New York City, look at Atlanta, Georgia, look at um, Boston, Massachusetts, all of those places that have very developed and robust um, ecosystems for venture capital, almost none of the partners in uh, firms are are color or, or women. In addition, almost no of the portfolio companies are led by women or by blacks. And quite frankly, in many ways, I believe that the venture capitalists themselves think that that's okay. And that's the way to success. And quite frankly, so there's no incentive for them to actually change their ways of doing things. And there's not even any pressure externally. They're LPs. These are the foundations. What you'd expect the foundations. You would expect the pension funds. You would expect the philanthropic organizations whose endowments are actually being invested. You would expect them to say, enough is enough and we want to see something different. But there seems to be this complicity, this silence, this conspiracy of silence around this particular issue. And we'll keep on putting the money in our pockets. And putting the money in our pockets is much more important And the way to do it is by doing it the way that we have been doing it. And there's no reason to rock the boat. There's no reason to change anything. What's wrong? This is the system that created Amazon, even though Amazon and Google don't necessarily have any sort of black people in very high level positions. It's very interesting and insidious kind of a problem. It's such an important conversation and we have to wrap this up here, but you're going to come back on very soon and we're going to continue this conversation because you make so many great points. The returns are good enough. You don't have to challenge the current existing system because the returns are good enough. You have to make concerted changes because you wish to, and then you find other opportunities. Eric, great point and great to have you with us. Eric Collins, CEO at Impact X Capital there. Thank you. All right, coming up after the break, did teenagers on TikTok help to derail President Trump's rally attendance? We'll investigate next. Welcome back to First Move. Questions being asked after President Trump's Oklahoma rally. The Trump campaign said over one million people registered to attend the event. But the Tulsa Fire Department says just over 6,000 people showed up. Some of those who requested tickets may have been trolling the president in a stunt organized mainly through users of the social media platform TikTok. Guys, I accidentally just reserved two free tickets for the Tulsa, Oklahoma Trump rally on Juneteenth. And now I can't go because my dog's goldfish's funeral is that day. So it'd be a shame, though, if like everyone else did this and then there were empty seats at the at the at the rally. That'd be that'd be really bad because we don't want that. CNN's Donny O'Sullivan is all over this story for us. So was the president TikToked in Tulsa or was something else going on here? Donny, what do we know? Hey, Julia. Well, as you can see, that that sort of video there would 
uh, bit of sarcasm and humor mixed in is is very uh, representative of what is all across TikTok uh, this past week of people saying that they were registering for the event and then not going to show up. Obviously, extreme uh, TikTok is extremely popular with teenagers, and it does appear that young people all across the U.S. took part in this protest. Now, I will say that um, you know there wasn't a cap on the number of people that could request tickets for the event. So it wasn't as if these TikTok users were blocking real supporters from going to the rally in some way. So the fact that the Trump campaign was unable to fill this 20,000 capacity arena isn't the TikTokers' fault. But what it probably did contribute to was the idea that there was going to be a million people uh, showing up at this event. Yeah, it's fascinating. Or maybe people... No, as an alternative here, we're just concerned about their health because cases uh, in the area have been rising, of course. But there has been scrutiny over TikTok's power. We've had the likes of Chuck Schumer, uh, Tom Cotton, Senator Tom Cotton, raising questions about national security risks surrounding TikTok. Of course, it's owned by China's ByteDance. Do we think as a result of what happened here, whether it was, you know, contributory factor or not, will mean more scrutiny, Tony? Yeah, I mean, what's interesting was that that earlier concern, um, that letter from, you know, a Democratic and a Republican senator last year, bipartisan concern about uh, China's Chinese ownership of, of TikTok and what that could mean for American national security. We might now see that TikTok becomes a more partisan issue like everything else in the United States. Um, we should mention, though, that the Trump campaign came out with a statement yesterday specifically addressing uh, some of it TikTok. Brad Parscale, the Trump campaign manager, said that leftists and online trolls doing a victory lap thinking they somehow impacted rally attendance don't know what they're talking about or how our rallies work. Registering for a rally means you've SVP'd with a cell phone number and we constantly weed out bogus phone numbers. These phony ticket requests never factor into our thinking. But that does raise the question, Julia, if he really did, you know, weed out all these bogus ticket requests, where were those one million people on Saturday night? Yes. Or or even just the hundred thousand that they perhaps talked about here. Maybe they decided to stay at home for health purposes. Donnie O'Sullivan, we're in a pandemic. Thank you so much for that. That's it for the show. Stay safe and we'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.